This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. More than 4 million Americans, mainly poor, black, and Latino, have lost the right to vote. In some states, as many as a third of all African-American men cannot take part in the most basic right of a democracy. The reason? Felony disenfranchisement laws which remove the vote from people while they are in prison or on parole and in several states for the rest of their lives. In his book, Conned, How Millions Went to Prison, Lost the Vote, and Helped Send George W. Bush to the White House, Sasha Abramsky, our guest today, looks at how these laws have come to undermine America's democratic ideals. Abramsky, a senior fellow for democracy at the public policy organization Demos, has written for the New York Times, The Nation, Rolling Stone, and LA Weekly. Sasha Abramsky, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. How are you today? I'm well. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. I think it's all right. Things are looking nothing but hot here. The power is going (laughs) out. There's a war in the Middle East. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So so tell us, with with all the other issues that take away people's uh, votes, like voter intimidation and fraud and and so-called irregularities, why have you focused on uh, felonies? Well, I got very interested. I'm a journalist. And about Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, I got very interested in the interplay between our criminal justice system and specific policy changes that we were implementing as a part of that and the broader economy and political system. And it seemed to me that something rather profound was happening. We, we were changing the way in which we utilize the criminal justice system, and we were beginning to use it more and more and more for very low-end offenses, mm. especially around drugs. Um, and it was as a result of a series of policy choices made in the 80s and 90s primarily. And the result of those policies were, was that we went from being a, a country that incarcerated about 440,000 people in the early 1970s to being a country that today incarcerates 2.2 million. We've become the single largest generator of prisoners anywhere on Earth. And it seemed to me this was having very, very profound impacts, one of which is that because a lot of states tie voting rights to felony records and deny voting rights to people with felonies, as the pool of people with felony records increased, it was having this almost invisible side effect, this collateral damage, if you like. And that was the shrinking of the suffrage. And that's rather extraordinary if you think about it. We, we, we have this somewhat rosy self-image which says that we're a country that has progressively expanded our definition of democracy. That if you like, the American story is this continual expansion of the franchise, expansion of our definition and understanding of citizenship. Now, if everybody knows about the wrinkle in the system, the introduction of Jim Crow 100 years ago, and that's the one point where everybody recognizes instead of the franchise expanding, there was this moment in time when it contracted very dramatically. Now, with felon disenfranchisement in an era of mass incarceration, I'd argue that we're witnessing the second great American contraction of the franchise. Now, given that we're in an era in which we increasingly go around the world promoting very, very aggressively our vision of democracy, I find it's particularly ironic that we're willing to fight overseas in the name of democracy, 
and yet we're the only country in the world that systematically strips the voting rights of an entire subsection of people and yet calls ourselves a democracy. I have heard this likened um, to, in, in some sense, it, it shadows the, um, what happened in South Africa during the apartheid era, that essentially our prisons are becoming a version of uh, the, uh, what do they call them, uh, I want to say Bakistans, but the, uh, the, the small... The Bantustans. Bantustans in, uh, in South Africa. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd go with that analogy. What I would say is happening is that we're increasingly using prisons and spending expenditure on prisons as a substitute for meaningful social policy. Mm-hmm. So from the Reagan period onwards especially, we de-invested in community mental health systems, for example. Mm-hmm. One of the results is there are now half a million seriously mentally ill people living in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, we've underinvested in inner city job training. We've underinvested in inner city transport infrastructures to link people to jobs. And one of the not surprising side effects is in the 80s and 90s, and a lot of inner cities, drug markets flourished. And we then responded to those drug markets by incarcerating an increasing number of people. So I, I, the analysis I use is that increasingly, as we've become reluctant to spend on welfare as we become reluctant to spend on investments in social training and social infrastructure increasingly that money is flowing towards incarceration and because of america's history and the overlap of class and race to a large extent increasingly the people at the bottom of the chain who are bearing the brunt of this are either african-american or latino i'm going to give you a very quick local example of what you're talking about here in santa Ana, uh there was a situation back in 92 93 when um the sheriff's department, the, actually the uh, Santa Ana uh, Police Department, wanted to build a new jail. And as they were approaching the end of the uh, construction of it, the um, we had the bankruptcy. And so the, the funds that they were counting on had disappeared. The county bankruptcy. Yeah. The, county, the Orange County bankruptcy occurred. And they then, uh, through some real political backroom deals, uh, were able to secure about 15 to 20 million dollars in HUD money to, in, in order to complete the, the construction of the jail. Money that was never repaid, but literally took away one of the, one of the ways in which we have, a, we, the poor, the lower income people have an opportunity to become more vested in society and therefore less likely to commit crime. So essentially, because of that, there were ramifications. But I, and I and I think that this is a particularly important illustration because it's an intersection where police and the ability, the political power of the police is so strong in in these small communities that these kinds of things happen on a fairly regular basis, and the and you're seeing it take away from the kind of social safety nets that we we desperately need in order to to prevent crime and. Uh, that's right. It sort of creates an illusion of safety. And the, the, the era of mass incarceration that I think we're living in is very much born out of a rhetoric, a political rhetoric, which sounds good on the 15-second news slot. It's a good sound by rhetoric, tough on crime. Yeah. Now, the problem is it's very, very simplistic. It basically views tough on crime as simply a lock them up and throw away the key approach. Right. Now, there are a couple problems with that. Well, there are more than a couple. It costs a lot of money. It costs about forty or $50,000 a year to incarcerate somebody. So it's not a cheap option to put somebody in prison. And if you're using prisons increasingly as a substitute for drug treatment, for mental health services, and so on, it costs a fortune down the road to the taxpayer. 
Now, the other problem with it is it doesn't actually solve the crime problem. It incapacitates people for a period of time, maybe a period of several years. But it doesn't intervene to meaningfully change their behavior or to change their options when they come back into the community. It leaves them undertrained. It leaves them undereducated. It leaves them, if they have a drug problem, with a drug problem, which means, cumulatively, when they come out of prison at the back end, there's a fairly good likelihood they'll commit new crimes. And you have what's called a revolving door, this cycle of arrest, incarceration, release, followed by a new cycle of arrest, incarceration, release. Now, the way this ties into disenfranchisement, and California actually is somewhat liberal on this in that it does let people vote when they come off of parole. So when you've done your time, you actually get your voting rights back. But nationally, the way in which this plays into the disenfranchisement debate, we already know that there are problems with reintegrating ex-prisoners. We already know that there are all these economic handicaps they face, that there is this likelihood that they're going to cycle back into the criminal justice system. As a public policy person, it would make sense to try and craft policy that would break the cycle. Now, one of the ways to break the cycle is to make somebody feel like they're a member of the community they're returning to, to make them feel like a full citizen, to give them a stake in the society. Because if you have a stake in society, there's less of a likelihood you're going to flagrantly violate that society's rules. On the other hand, if you live in a state like Florida, let's say, which disenfranchises about a million people at this point, or Virginia or Mississippi or Alabama, which permanently remove the voting rights from felons, You've been told you're a member of an untouchable underclass or a caste. You've been told that whatever you do, the default assumption by your own state government is that you cannot vote and that you're not a full citizen. Now, I went around the country. My book's based around reportage, which means I talk to people. I talk to hundreds and hundreds of people. What they said is not being able to vote makes them feel ashamed. It makes them feel humiliated. It makes them feel angry and bitter. It makes them feel like they're an internal exile in their own country. Now, the cumulative impact of that is you're cutting whatever remaining ties a person has with the community. Now, instead of weakening the likelihood that they're going to cycle back into the criminal justice system, if you tell them they're a member of an untouchable underclass with no political rights, you're making it very, very likely that they will at some point recidivate, that they will at some point commit new crimes. So disenfranchisement, while it sounds like it's being tough on crime, I think when you actually examine it, it's the exact opposite. It's weak on crime because it creates conditions that make it more likely that down the road people will return to crime. So it, to me, it's an extraordinarily counterproductive public policy. Right. I want, to, I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Sasha Bramsky, and the book is Conned, How Millions Went to Prison, Lost the Vote, and Helped Send George Bush, George W. Bush to the White House. About how many people nationally are we talking about that are unable we're talking about 5 million, a bit more than 5 million at this point. Mm -hmm. Now, 1.3 million of them live in prison. Several hundred thousand more are on parole or probation. But about half of them live in the community. They've done their time. Mm -hmm. They're not under any criminal justice supervision, but they have the misfortune from a voting rights perspective to live in a state like Florida or Tennessee or in the western part of the country, Washington state, that makes it extraordinarily difficult to regain their voting rights. Mm -hmm. So... When you went, one of the things that got me interested in this, in 2000, the election deadlocked in Florida between Al Gore and George Bush, and everyone talked about hanging chads and butterfly ballots and dimpled ballots, and we learned all these weird words that we subsequently were sort of etched into our consciousness. 
The big issue for me in Florida in 2000 was in a deadlocked election, three-quarters of a million Floridians, or about 7% of the adult population in Florida, have been told by their own government that they couldn't vote. Most of them were low-income. A huge percentage of them were minority. They were African-American or Latino. And all of the evidence suggests that that's a population group which, on the aggregate, taken as a whole, is more likely to skew towards the Democrats than the Republicans. Now, I, I don't think that this is or should be a partisan issue. For me, this is a weird kink in the democratic process, and it should be explained as such, and it should be dealt with as such. It's something that's anachronistic and that doesn't really have a role in a modern democracy. But it is undeniable, when you look at who's being disenfranchised, it's undeniable that pragmatically, this is an issue that disproportionately hurts the Democratic Party, that it takes out of play several million votes that were they in play would likely skew towards the Democratic Party or non-conservative candidates, because these are low-income people. They're people with all of the economic needs of low-income people. They're people who are concerned by problems in cities. They're people who are concerned by unemployment, they're people who are concerned by high gasoline prices, they're the lowest income people, and yet they have no stake or no play within the political system. To my mind, that was the biggest story in Florida in yeah. 2000. Yeah. I, had, I had, so you, your, your numbers were over 700,000. Well, the, num- the numbers, I there, over there, there were a couple numbers being bandied about in Florida. Mm-hmm. The conservative estimate, the estimate provided by the Secretary of State's office in Florida, in other words, by the Florida government, governmental machinery. And a highly partisan yeah, uh, Secretary and, and, of State. But that cautious estimate was about half a million. Yeah. Independent statisticians who tried to crunch the numbers, and it's a, a fairly hard number to get a definitive hold on because there is no central database of ex-felons mm-hmm. anywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. But the statisticians who looked at it said, well, actually, we think they're about three-quarters of a million. And I've talked to some of them recently, and they said since 2000, they believe another quarter of a million have been added to that, which means in one single state, in the state of Florida today, there are now one million disenfranchised people. And, and if these, that, if, as a journalist, if that's not a story, yeah. I don't know what is. Yeah. And these are people that are not serving in, they're not in prison. Well, for, some of them the are most, in prison, but okay. the majority of them have served their time. Okay. They're, living, they're living in the community and they're paying taxes. This, for me, is one of the key issues. This is, this is a classic example of the old phrase, no taxation without representation. These guys have been asked and required to pay taxes, and yet they've also been told they cannot vote, that they have no ability to participate politically. Isn't this part of a a, a greater trend, which is to keep punishing people far beyond the time that they've spent in prison? I thought the concept was if you committed a crime, you went to prison, your debt to society had been essentially, you were even. That's right. And I mean, when, when you look at the sort of founding principles of the American prison system, right. it was actually born out of the Enlightenment. And it, it's amazing to think of now, but the American prison system 180 years ago was one of the wonders of the modern world. People came from all over the world to tour American prisons to see what was being done in the name of rehabilitation. It was the first country that had adopted wholesale mechanisms with the explicit intent of rehabilitating criminals. Now, this was in a period when England was transporting its prisoners to Australia or was executing them. France was transporting them to its colonies or executing them. 
the default punishments in much of the world were physical punishments, torture, maiming, corporal punishment, Mm -hmm. all the way up to execution. And America said, no, we're a new country. We have this modern idea of how we want to govern ourselves. And we created a very, very expensive state-of-the-art prison system. And the idea was you did your time and you came out. You didn't have a clean slate, but you had a fairly good chance at a fresh start afterwards. Mm -hmm. Now, in the last 30 years, and again, it's very much part of the rhetoric of tough on crime, which has been militarized to a large degree. We talk about the war on crime. Right. We talk about the war on drugs. really goes back to the Reagan administration. Well, it goes back to Reagan and a little bit beyond. The, the first rhetoric around this actually comes out in the early 70s when Nixon was president. Right. But, um, but it really took level. hold. Also, also, Nixon himself started talking about a war on crime and a war on drugs. War on drugs. Largely as a sort of way to try and divert attention, I guess unsuccessfully, but to try and divert attention from his own problems and his own criminal malfeasances. Um, But anyway, we created this language of a war against crime, and that rapidly morphed into a war against criminals. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you're going to fight a war against crime, why have any sympathy or empathy with the criminals who are going into prison? And so politicians increasingly decided that it was going to play well to their audiences, to their electorates, to heap on the punishments. So you started seeing legislation which said when you come out of prison, certain categories of offenders are going to be monitored beyond their parole term. Then you started seeing legislation saying certain categories of offenders, especially drug felons, are going to become ineligible for government loans, for educational loans. They became ineligible for public housing. Their families became ineligible for public housing. Right. So if I, if I have a drug felony and I come back to the community and I go to stay with my, my mother, let's say, who's living in a public housing unit, my mother can be evicted for housing me. So that, that's, um, that's a relatively change in yeah. our understanding of A, who's responsible for crime, yeah. and B, how long we can punish somebody for crime. Well, and how pervasively we can, break, we can punish right. them. Uh, I, I want to once again. Uh, we're speaking with Sasha Bromsky, and the book is conned. Um, and um, there, and I, I want to go back. I mean, I don't want to get too far into this because that's not what your book is about. But there is this whole political infrastructure now, especially at the local level, where the police and fire determine who will be the council members, the mayors, the school board. So much of of the local elections are dependent upon getting the endorsement of of the police and fire. And as a result, there is a, there is an increasing political strength at where where most politicians begin their careers, uh, and and a real um, uh, a real bond with uh, the sheriff's departments and all the rest of it. Uh, that unless they play, unless they support their own the the sheriff's interest, they won't get elected. And this creates this atmosphere where punishment is is the first uh, is the first recourse when you're considering legislation or new programs um, and it just feeds into this in, this sort of police uh, uh, this prison industrial system I think it's a feeder system if you will in a lot yeah, of yeah I mean a colleague of mine a man called Joel Dyer yeah. a journalist um, wrote a book a few years back which he titled the perpetual prisoner machine yeah and I think it's a very interesting phrase there's, there's this idea that uh, there's a series of interlocking bureaucratic interests financial interests um, law enforcement interests which have some kind of stake in over incarceration now nobody's going to say that there or very few people are going to say that there's no room in our society for law enforcement and for prisons 
I certainly wouldn't say that. Well, there are certainly not. some people who, as a society, we're far better off having put behind bars. There are some people who are just very, very dangerous, and I'm very glad that law enforcement is out there to intervene against them. The problem is the war on drugs and the war on crime have played out not against the hardcore offenders, but increasingly they've played out against the lower-end offenders. They've given law enforcement agencies a financial incentive to overemphasize the war on drugs, for example. They've given a premium to um, correctional officers' unions to push for ever more prisons to be built. And when you build more prisons, chances are those prisons are going to fill up pretty, pretty quickly because we've spent billions of dollars building them. Now we need to justify all that expenditure. Well, and as you know, I know you know this from, from your work on Three Strikes, is the prison guard union in California is among the most powerful, if not the most po- powerful political lobby in the state. But, and it, it has absolutely precluded any kind of reform in, in, the, in that area of prison reform or any of that? That's right. And one of the things I found interesting in my research over the years is that when you talk to heads of correctional departments, oftentimes the senior correctional administrators are scathing about these changes. So I've talked to a number of retired um, heads of the correctional system here in California, for example, Mm -hmm. and they, A, are very, very hostile to the power that the Correctional Officers Union has accrued here. And secondly, they're extremely cynical about the motives of the politicians who have passed laws that have resulted in this explosive growth in California's prison population. So oftentimes the experts in the field, the people who have made careers out of correctional administration, actually believe that we're heading on a dramatically wrong course when it comes to crime and punishment policies. Yeah. I'll give you, I'm I'm sure you know this, but I'll give our, our audience uh, uh, one quick example here in california in the last 20 i think it's 20 years 22 years the uh california has built 21 prisons in one university that's right and unfortunately that's i mean california is a little bit of an extreme case but you'll find fairly similar stories throughout the country um texas you'll see an even more extraordinary growth in its prison population and and in the number of prisons New York went on a prison building binge, Pennsylvania did, almost every big state in America dramatically increased the number of prisons. And even small states, um, one of the, in my book, one of the chapters I focus on is Iowa, which is a tiny state. And Iowa's prison population went from a couple thousand a few decades ago to well over 10,000 today with predictions that it's going to increase to 12 or 15,000. So th- these are increases of 500 to 700 percent, and you see them in every single state in America. Yeah, and in addition to that, the, the, the prison population in the state is, is in, in proportion to the prison uh, capacity, is almost at 200 percent. So we're cramming more people into these prisons, more and more. We have, it, it, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. We have the second highest population in the world. Just the United States is the or third, I should say. I think China's ahead of California. But it's the United States, China, and California in terms of the amounts of people that we actually incarcerate. It has gotten – we could go on about this, but uh, – Do um, you it, see any way out of the cycle is what I want yeah. Is there any uh, legislation pending or is there any, any hope? Well, I mean, in terms, of the, in terms of legislation to end prison growth, I'd have to say no. I mean, there are people in different states who have – you know, broach the ideas in, re- in recent years of diverting low-end drug offenders. California has Proposition 36. In Kansas, the Sentencing Commission recommended 
fairly substantial changes to its drug laws. Even in conservative states like Louisiana, in recent years, there's been some move to divert low-end drug offenders. So you do see tinkering at the margins. Um, in terms of legislation to try and finesse the problem of disenfranchisement that accompanies yeah. mass incarceration, it depends on the states. So because this is very much a state-by-state issue, and which is why when I wrote my book, I did it as a travelogue. I went across country... I crafted each chapter as a self-contained story about an individual state. And what you see is in the western states, in states like Nevada and New Mexico and Wyoming, which had permanent disenfranchisement laws dating back to the 19th century, and probably nobody had even thought about these laws for 100 years. After 2000, when attention began to be paid to this very sort of arcane area of election law, most of the Western states fairly quickly did reform permanent disenfranchisement. They replaced it with something more akin to California's law, this temporary removal of voting rights while you're in prison, while you're on parole, and then a restoration. That hasn't happened in the South. In the South, where the disenfranchisement laws were fairly explicitly tied in to the creation of Jim Crow 100 years ago, 120 years ago, in the South you've seen a consolidation of disenfranchisement. You've seen conservative politicians essentially going to bat to defend these laws. And so what you see now in Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida, which is a large part of the Old South, you see permanent disenfranchisement with an extreme racial tinge because the prison population in those states is so disproportionately African-American. In these states, you see about one in four black men voteless, which is a startling, startling reduction in the suffrage. You see entire neighborhoods in cities like Memphis where people can't vote. And I, I actually went around the housing projects in Memphis with a state representative called Larry Turner who'd made reenfranchisement one of his signature issues. So this man knew that this was a problem. And yet he said, look, I go into these housing projects and I cannot spend time there during election time because I won't get re-elected. There's nobody voting in these housing That's right. projects. That's right. So I go to the other communities. I go to the precincts where people are reliable and turn out to vote. And I thought this was amazing, that a man who had made a career out of trying to reform Tennessee's disenfranchisement laws couldn't campaign in urban, inner-city Memphis because he knew it was just a waste of time electorally. Right. And, and that, you know, if you, if you magnify that, you think this is happening in Memphis, it's happening in Miami, it's happening in... in Richmond, Virginia, it's happening in any large southern city. That's somewhat extraordinary that we in, we've come full circle in a sense, and 40 years after the Voting Rights Act, we've now regressed to a point where such a high percentage of African Americans is getting caught up in the criminal justice system and losing their vote as a result, that again, politics has become the preserve of an elite in many areas, yeah. rather than something that's practiced by well, everybody. Well, that was sort of what I was referring to earlier with the South African uh, reference. But I, uh, Sasha, we're run, uh, we're run out of time here. <laughs> I want, um, I wanted to uh, remind our listeners once again: the book is Conned: How Millions Went to Prison, Lost the Vote, and Helped Send George W. Bush to the White House. Is there? A, you have a website. Yeah, I'll can... give you two websites. Okay. First is specifically for the book, and it's www.condthebook.com. That's C-O-N-N-E-D, thebook.com. Now, the second website is my website. It obviously has information about the book, but also yeah. about my other work. It's Sasha at www.sashaabramski, S-A-S-H-A, 
A-B-R-A-M-S-K-Y.com. And for listeners, they can go to our website, which we'll we refer you to that. So uh, thank you very much for being on Weekly Signals, um, and uh, good, good luck to you on all your future work. Thank you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.